Welcome, I'm an international adoptee and host of the Anna Ginger Show who believes that we all experience adoption in our lives. We actively choose the people, values, and experiences that create who we are and who we are yet to be. And this is why I invite you to listen to the guest and creative content that guides us to knowing that we each have a home in this world, cradled in the belief that we belong, that we are worthy, and that we are loved. So stay tuned and you may discover your own adoption story. So our guest superpower, which I love so much, is empathy. That's an awesome superpower. She believes in the capacity for humans to evolve. And she also believes that we can hold people accountable without stripping them of their dignity and that there is power in storytelling. She's an educator, mom, partner, Korean transracial adoptee, wannabe baker, and Midwest transplant from Southern California. And if I could say that, California. And our name is Dr. Joy Hoffman. So, Joy, welcome <laughs> to the Hi. Anna Dinger Show. You can probably say your name better than me. <laughs> well, I've had a little practice. <laughs> yes, that's good. So, I gave a little bit, uh, stumbled through that introduction a little bit, but I do love that superpower of empathy. But what do you think the listeners should know about you and your story? Oh, wow. Um, I think just in a nutshell, um, so I yeah, obviously I'm adopted and everything, but I um, I grew up in Southern California. Um, the, I lived in California my entire life. Um, was raised in a white family. Went to uh, schools. Lived in a neighborhood. Went to schools, church, everything. Everything was within um, a white um, community, and so I think um, for me even to be. I'm thinking just being on this podcast and even to the, you know, you talked about my superpower is empathy and that's uh, the information that you got that I know that's from my website. It's a consulting website. And just the fact that I'm a consultant that specifically works with organizations and companies and institutions around their diversity and equity goals and strategic plans is sometimes mind blowing to me because the way I was raised that that's not what I probably would have become. And so um, I think just my higher ed journey, I, I fell, I literally fell into higher education in 1994. I had been um, teaching first and second grade because that was my discipline in, in college. I wanted to be a teacher, an elementary school teacher. So I, I did that, but I was doing that for about four years. And I got a call from my alma mater asking me if I wanted to work there. And it was working in student leadership development and honestly just thought it would be a detour while I looked for a job at another school. And I just fell in love with working um, with college students and student development and watching them grow. But I think that also catapulted my own development development as I watched them grow and was having conversations with other professionals and going through conferences and then um, eventually pursuing my master's degree and my doctorate and learning more about developmental theories and identity development, all those things. I had my own identity crises at the same time I was trying to help students <laughs> um, in their student identity development. And so it was kind of playing both sides of, okay, I want to help you develop, but I'm also trying to figure myself out too. Um, but I think falling into higher ed is really what um, almost saved me from myself uh, because I, through the narratives and storytelling, and this is why I say storytelling is so powerful, through the storytelling of students and their lived experiences and what they shared and um, honestly confided in me, um, 
helped me be a better human in turn learning empathy and um, uh, perspective taking and understanding that all my lived experiences were not the same as everyone else's and my belief systems and whatever it may be, um, how I saw the world, how I thought, how I knew the world, um, the way I behaved in the world was not always the same as someone else. And it just, it, it was like an enlightening experience, but it also led me to where I, where I am now. So 24 years later, um, I left higher ed because I moved to Minnesota. That's why I'm a Southern California transplant to the Midwest. Um, I moved to Minnesota where rural, rural Minnesota, by the way, and I had to start over and there weren't, there weren't really a lot of places where I wanted to work or could work. So that's when I started my consulting business. So it's just all came full circle, but I think people who knew me in high school or even during college would, had they not known my journey in higher ed and the, how I evolved, um, would be shocked that I'm doing DEI work. And yet this is also why I believe in the, a person's capacity of, to evolve. So that's why that's also in my biography on, on my consulting, um, website is I just, I truly believe in a, the human capacity to evolve. Um, and I do believe that, um, we can hold people accountable. People do need to be held accountable, but I do believe we can hold them accountable in ways that do not strip them of their dignity because I think that's also how they grow. That's how I grow. Um, I evolved because people were patient with me and allowed me to be in that journey. I love that. Well, let's go back to talking about your name. So we talked a little bit as we were prepping for our time together and your name was Joy. Your name is, not was, is Joy. <laughs> Stewie, and when we um, introduced you to the uh, engineer, to Adam, it said, Joy Stewie, uh, ha-ha, kind of thing. And my maiden name was Anna Soderberg, which was a Norwegian. And so if you listening, you can't really see the joke here. So my name was Anna Soderberg, which sounds very Scandinavian. It was very cruel for our substitute teachers who would do roll call, and they'd say, Anna Soderberg, expecting this blonde Norwegian Iowa farm girl and then this Korean kid raised her hand. They're like, yeah, I don't think that's your name. So for you, Joy Stewie, which is German, um, but you were adopted as an infant. Is that right? Yes, I was adopted at around nine, 10 months old. Um, so, yeah. So and that at that time, um, you didn't have to go to your country of origin to get your child. So I was just dropped off at LAX. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dropped off at LAX and went home. <laughs> yes, that was the same for me. So I was um, at, at that time in 1972. The adoption agency would hire businessmen to travel or to travel with the infants to come to America. So yeah. my, I flew in from Korea to uh, San Diego and then to Colorado. Oh wow! Yeah. And so yeah. people will say, did you learn the language, uh, how to speak Korean? I was like, well, I was only three months old. So right. I'm, I'm a quick learner, but not that quick. Right. <laughs> yeah. And my, um, I was adopted at the same time as my older brother, but he was adopted. So we're not blood related, but he was adopted at the same time. Um, we believe he's biracial. Um, I did a DNA test and I'm almost like, I'm, I'm high, high, high percentage Korean. And there's a little Japanese and Chinese in there. And, um, but mostly Korean. Um, so we were completely from different families, but he was three years old. And so he actually knew Korean, um, but uh, they taught him English and 
made sure that he learned English and then he forgot all of it. So, yeah, that's so I didn't know. I didn't know the language either, but he knew it and now he doesn't. And so what what would you say was a formative experience for you growing up in a in a white German household? Oh, gosh, I think I think in hindsight, um, you know, you, you know, you're different. Um, but you can't name it, especially as a child. And that's, you know, typical, it's typical development, right? Um, and I, I would get bullied by the neighbors, but I didn't know why I was getting bullied. So they would, you know, they'd pull their eyes back. They'd call me racial slurs um, or they would just bully. I mean, I remember one time running home to my mom because I was on the corner um, walking home and a little boy came out of his house and he just pulled my pants down. And I pulled him back up and I went home and my mom walked me down to the house. She was telling me which house. Um, and we knocked on the door and the mom, you know, the mom, you know, got the kid to come downstairs. I said, yep, that's him. And I don't think he realized that that would happen. Um, but I think, you know, so it was interesting because my mom and dad always advocated for me, but we didn't talk about race. So there was never conversations of why I was being bullied. Um, and I don't know that they knew, right? Like I, I, my, my parents were that generation of colorblindness where you just, you know, the, the best thing you can do is not see someone's color of their skin. And that's a compliment. You know, that's a good thing because you don't see skin color. But by not seeing my skin color, they also weren't being able to name the experiences for me. So I think in hindsight, it would have been great if when I went home and said I'm being bullied or someone just did this with their eyes or someone called me this name, what does that mean? For them to name it and say, that's actually racist. Um, and this is why, why they're saying that. Um, you're beautiful the way you are. You've got beautiful brown skin, but sometimes people don't think that, and that's wrong, right? But we didn't, and that, that's a very easy developmental conversation to have with a child. But I don't know that it's easy for everyone. And when you live in a colorblind mentality, you just, you say, oh, that, don't worry about it. You know, and so what I would always hear is um, just ignore them. We love you. Or Jesus loves you because I grew up in a Christian family. And so I was just always told to ignore it. So I never named it. And so later on, <laughs> when really stuff started, when I was able to name it as I got older, then I was just like, wait, this has been happening all my life. <laughs> you know. Or when, when I was in um, grad school and a professor asked, you know, talk about your earliest experience with racism. And I all of a sudden had this flashback to when I was a child, even though I never named it as a child, you know, so I think that was a really formative experience, but I didn't even know it, <laughs> you know, but it was, it was always, I had people, regardless of my parents always telling me I was one of them. Um, and I think what they meant was I'm their family. They'll never see me as anything less than their family, but I think, um, I think, I think the damage of it is too, is that, you know, I'm, but I'm, st I'm not one of you. Like, I don't, I don't navigate this world the same way that you do. And, and we're not having conversations around that. Um, I think, yeah, th those were, those were really, those, those experiences were the ones that were just, that were just 
pointedly said, you are different. You don't belong here. Because I was one of the only brown kids in the neighborhood. I can't remember. I mean, my brother was there. I don't remember any other brown kids. I mean, not even from any other ethnicities. Like, we were the only two Asian kids, much less any other brown kids in the neighborhood. So, um, but I just always remember feeling different. And I didn't name it, name it until way later on in life. Yeah. And you, and you talked about like when, so you're helping college students navigate through their experience as a right. college student. And then at the same time, you're trying to figure this out yourself. Yeah. And so with your dissertation, you created your own identity theory. And then I, I know it's a, it's a long topic to talk about, but can you describe a little bit about what you discovered after you developed your own identity theory? Well, yeah. And I think one of the things, whenever I do trainings, I talk about how everything a theory shows us, it also hides something, which is why people build off of theories. It's why when you do a dissertation, you look at other theoretical frameworks and you talk about in your literature view about what works, um, what makes sense, what's missing, what are the gaps, because you're hoping to do research that will fill in the gaps because there's gaps in every you know piece of research. And so the gaps for me were it just all of the identity-based theories that I'd looked at specifically specifically around race and or ethnicity, didn't um, consider, well, what does it look like, though, to be a person of color who's being raised in a white family? Um, Because all of these identity-based theories are usually, you know, from my knowledge, are human beings who have also been raised by human beings who look like them. And so their understanding of culture is different. Their understanding of their racial or ethnic identity is very different. Language, all those different things. And so my um, study really explored um, what does that look like specifically for Korean transracial adoptees. And um, what I what I discovered was that um, there's there was definitely a very strong adoptee identity with uh, transracial Korean adoptees. That was an important part of their narrative. And so, unlike other theories, that adoptee identity is not part of the other theories because they're not adopted, right? Um, the environmental context was a huge piece of um, you know where you lived. Um, and what you were introduced to, all the you know your whether whether it was your 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 schools, your neighborhood, um, education you know education churches, all those different things, and then support and finding you know community and and what does it look like if you actually have support to um, to explore your ethnic identity? Um, so it was. You know, and it, and there was also this piece of you know these these missing pieces. This these, and at first when I was reading through all of the theoretical pieces around adoption, they talked about loss. And so when I asked my you know participants around if they had feelings of loss, the very beginning participants, no, no, no. You know, I don't really feel like I have any you know you know experiences with loss. Well, I got into, you know, interviews four or five and six, and everybody was talking about things that were, they seemed to be missing from their lives. Um, things like cultural um, understanding, language, um, medical records, things like that. So then I went back to the first three and I said, I want to re-interview you on this section. And I, instead of calling it loss, I want to call it missing pieces. Do you feel like there's missing pieces 
to your story. And then the, the floodgates open. I'm like, well, yeah, of course, you know. So I kind of reframed, reframed loss in my um in my dissertation too around missing pieces but it was just all of these things coming together that really explain the adoptee journey specifically to being um what is it to understand your ethnic identity in the context of being raised by a white family in a white environment and having support or not having support in terms of um, exploring your ethnic identity and what does that mean for you in sense of, you know, what do you feel is missing from your narrative? Um, do you want to seek it out? Do you not want to seek it out? Or why? Um, how do you heal? You know, that healing piece, what does healing look like for you? Um, yeah. And so it was, it was a very fascinating study, but it is also very healing for me because I realized for the first time I wasn't alone. Um, you know, as I kept hearing everybody's stories, like, oh my gosh, this, this, this resonates, this resonates. And I think, you know, I always talk about research being me-search, that when you really pick a topic that you're passionate about, um, it's not just about the research and opening doors for more understanding, but it, it can also resonate with you and be very healing for you too, so. Yeah, well, and you were talking about how people were surprised that you went into DEI consulting. Um, and just what I'm listening to your experience, it doesn't surprise me at all. I think that you would be a natural subject matter expert to help facilitate difficult conversations to help make sure that people feel connected. Um, and I think about speaking of connecting, I think about Nick Kazernas when I shared your story, who was our music director. He picked a song for you um, titled Quiet Signals. And so we're going to listen to that and talk about why he chose that song for you. Okay.
song is titled Quiet Signals. Um, Nick Kazernis wrote that song and he said that he chose that song because it has a deliberate wandering feel that also has a somewhat mysterious ending and he was really happy they were able to capture that feeling as the two of them are working on these songs during lockdown. The songs seemed to come out of nowhere, but when they arrived, they definitely spoke to the feelings that we were having at the time. And he's, the we he's talking about is Kate, who is his uh, his uh, collaborative partner in, in creating this music. The hope that we would learn and grow from the strange experience as individuals, as families, and as communities during our journey. Thank you, Nick, for picking that song for Joy. So, Joy, how do you respond to Nick's selection of a song, Quiet Signals? So I, I listened to it several times and um, it actually made me cry <laughs> because there is a, there's a transition around three thirty. Um, it So the whole first part just seems very thoughtful and smooth and reflective. And then there's a transition point um, where it, it's, it's not as smooth and it's a little not I don't want to say bumpier but you you can tell that the music changes and and it I feel like it's this thoughtful piece so it just reminded me of my own journey it's almost like here I am just kind of skating as an adoptee or skating as this brown child living in a white world and um, not knowing anything about racism not knowing anything about anything that impacts the world because I'm just living my best life right um, and then that that the the song changing the, that little thoughtful piece is those it reminded me of those first critical incidences um, whether it was when I was a young child or as they continued through high school and college with comments whether it was jokes or well-meaning comments like you're you're not Asian you're white you know things like that all of those things and then at 350 there's another musical change and it just feels like it's more rough and it just that's I feel like that was my crossroads and I think it all of the experiences worked up to grad school where when I was learning about developmental theory and learning and um, also working in higher ed and working with um, college students and hearing their narratives, I just hit this crossroads of, I need to be a better human. <laughs> like I need to understand this better. Um, I was clearly um, reflecting on my own lived experiences um, of what had happened throughout my life because I was talking about it in grad school, but I was also trying to help students work through their experiences. And so there was just this big collision of, oh my gosh, I, I just, I need to learn so much more about identity and what it means to students and how it impacts them, especially in a higher education environment. How do I create spaces for students that are safer, that are braver, that are that are sense of belonging for them so that they feel like they belong here because they don't feel like they belong here. Um, and then at 440, you can hear the the thoughtful music in the background. You can hear the music from the very beginning overlapping with the crossroads music. And I feel that that's just always my life. <laughs> like I, I, I tend to navigate the world pretty easily because I can interact with white people very easily because I've interacted with them my entire life. And so I'm able to um, negotiate space, negotiate conversations, um, I'm able to set boundaries in ways that maybe others can't. 
um, I'm now, you know, able to give a little more grace because I see my mom or I see um, a family or, or other friends in their faces and, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, and yet at the same time, as a person of color, I still get angry and I still get um, irritated and I get still get frustrated and I, I, I'm still saddened by world events and, and the harm and the violence that happens. And so it was that, that music at 440 where you heard the softer beginning music in the background that, that was so innocent um, and then it hits the crossroads music. Um, that's a little rough and they're both playing at the same time. That was really powerful for me. Well, that was a very powerful response, I would say, Joey, to um, mixed music piece. And I think it highlights and spotlights um, your work in your life, um, all that you do to bring joy into this world and to help others be their best selves. And so as we come to this close to, of our time together, your heart to heart message that you would like our listeners to take from our time together with this, either with a song or just what you've shared with us today. I just, I just encourage and I just wish that people would just choose, choose to be kind, right? But uh, when I say choose kindness or be kind, I'm not talking about the passive aggressive, be kind. And as long as I'm smiling at the, you know, at the cashier or smiling at this person in public and I didn't say anything racist or I didn't say anything homophobic or ableist or whatever. But if I'm going home and I'm saying all of those things, well, <laughs> then that smile really didn't mean much. <laughs> I mean, the type of be kind, not only in your actions, but do the work to make you a better human so that you understand why that kind action is necessary. Um, so when you do the work and you and you learn about people and communities who are different than you, um, I think the fear of the unknown, I think people act out because they fear what they do not know. And if we could lessen that fear by just educating ourselves, whether it's reading a book or listening to a podcast, watching a documentary, or just... Um, asking the hard questions or being in tough dialogue with people and accepting um, accepting what you do not know and learning about things. I just want people to be better humans. I feel like if we had a world of better humans, the whole world would be better. <laughs> I love that wish. And I do wish that for all of us too. And I think you're absolutely right. And I hope that we can continue to have another conversation, Joy, because I think that we could have six or seven, 10,000 episodes just talking about um, your dissertation and your experiences and the work that you do in the DEI space as well. So this is one of many conversations, I hope. So a heartfelt thank you to Dr. Joy Hoffman for sharing your story and your experiences. And Nick, what a brilliant job that you did in selecting a song to match to Joy's story. Thank you to Adam Rich with WOUB for engineering and editing today's program. Our subject matter expert is Dr. Melissa Rizzo. And our storytelling consultant is Zoe Lambert. Our music producer, again, that brilliant Nick Kazernis, and I am your host, Anna Ginja, signing off with a reminder that the key to unlocking all things good in this world is love, and here you are loved and you are home. Always a friend and fan, this is Anna Ginja wishing you days filled with love, laughter, and peace.